you, you're resilient, you can get through it, you maybe get down to their bones, but you don't give up, right? And I think that to me is half the battle, is just not giving up and soldiering on because from those ashes, something is going to rise, something's going to be different. Like when coronavirus happened, everybody's like, oh, holy crap, what do we do now, right? And the first thing we did was talk to all of our customers and ask, what is it that we can provide you right now that would help you? Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today for another episode. I have Say Pike with me today, the founder and CEO of IOTIS. We have a fascinating conversation today about her business that helps multifamily owners, operators, and tenants turn their properties into smart homes. We dive deep into the early days of IOTIS and how it was built. We talk about what IOTIS is and, and kind of this value proposition of the smart home that is becoming more mainstream. We talk a lot about the recent partnership that they have created with Amazon and where they see the future going in this smart home world and was really inspired by some of the leadership characteristics that Say brings to the table and how she thinks about the world. So enjoy and thank you again for joining me. Say thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I just wanted to kick it off with kind of the two minute cliff note version of your story and what kind of brought you to today and to IOTIS. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited and honored to be here. So to dive in, uh, my quick background, I've been in telco mobile forever since 2000, launched a company in 2007 that was focusing on mobile user experience. That was a fortuitous time because iPhone came out at the same time. I sold that company later uh, on to Ernst & Young, a digital advisory group. But before I sold it, I was working with a few large heavyweight tech companies on smart home and, and smart home offerings for those tech companies. And what came about, though, in that realization was that the true market of where smart home was going to take off was in multifamily because all the early adopters of technology were living in multifamily. They didn't own, and nor did they have any plans of owning real estate anytime soon. And so luckily for me, a building developer approached me asking for technology differentiation for their building. And that was when like the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, this is how it's going to happen. It's going to be part of the infrastructure of the building. It, and when residents move in, it's just going to work. It's going to be like magic. And any real, true technology advances in the past is not any differentiated from magic, right? That's how I wanted IOTIS to be, how I wanted a smart apartment to be. They walk in, everything just works with voice control or automatically, you know, you walk in, things turn on, you walk out, things turn off, lock behind you, so on and so forth. And that's how I imagined IOTIS to be, and that's why I'm here today. So you launched uh, IOTIS in 2016. Can you kind of uh, maybe paint a picture of what things look like early on from just kind of the startup standpoint, building the team and kind of getting going. Obviously, you were kind of already having momentum in the in the space, but what did the early days look like? Oh, yeah, sure. So the early days, our office was actually inside of an apartment. So the same developer that asked us for the technology differentiation for their building, we asked them, hey, could we have an apartment apartment as an office? And so they initially gave us a one-bedroom apartment, and there was about, I don't know, six of us in that apartment coming in, reporting to work, testing, putting things in the walls, testing, testing, testing. And then we eventually got a little bit bigger because we got some funding, and we asked to be moved into a two-bedroom apartment. And then we got a little bit bigger and asked to be moved into a three-bedroom apartment. <laughs> and when we asked for a three-bedroom apartment, they're like, no, get out, get a real office. <laughs> we're like, yeah, but this is like the perfect custom environment. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, the early days was, was pretty awesome to be able to uh, really live the product, right, inside the apartment and really understand how slow would be, how things would work, um, to be part of the apartment community to see what would make a difference as well as we rolled out. So we could literally go t 
talk to our users because there was also a grocery store down below. And so we actually got kicked out of the grocery store at one point because we were like kind of canvassing inside the grocery store and would walk up to people and be like, hey, which UI do you like better? This or this? What about this color? Which one do you like better? And and like a store manager followed us and they're like, you can't do that. You're not allowed to canvas people here inside the store. I'm like, this will take a second. Okay, we're out. We're out. But it was it was a great environment. I mean, I I highly recommend anybody who's going to try to do a startup to just like really get in there and get your hands dirty. And that's probably one of the best feedback loops I've ever heard of. (laughs) Really, that's that's good. So, are there things that about the product today? that maybe wouldn't exist had you not, I mean, because of your business and what it does to make uh, multifamily and uh, multifamily units into a smart home, are there things about the product today that might not have existed had you not started the business kind of in your own world that you were going to start building for? I mean, that's a super unique kind of way to build a business. Not everybody can do that. Yeah, so I think what wouldn't have existed because we were so close inside the apartment community was we could follow along with the property managers, right? And see the, the kind of, uh, I would say, wasted labor um, that the property managers were doing. So this particular property is a mid-rise spread across three city blocks. And when it was, and it's 200 units, and when, when it's first leasing up, these leasing agents would run around turning on lights to make the building seem occupied. Right, and which makes total sense because you know people who are first moving in, they don't want to live in a dark building, and it's somewhat disturbing. So they would run around doing this, turning on lights, turning on thermostats, turning off thermostats, and like, God, that's such a waste of time. We could do that with the push of a button. Why don't you tell us? Like, you need that. And so we created automations for uh, vacant units and routines. So things happen during business hours, after business hours, during evening hours when you need those vacant units to look like they're occupied, randomized those sets, whatever it was. And so that was the early days and where it's not at now is so much further along, but so necessary, especially after uh, coronavirus and COVID hit, you know, certain regions completely shut down, right? Where they had no uh, staff going into the buildings. And so they really needed information off of the buildings, like notifications of Entry, guest entry, notifications of um, leaks, any sort of like potential issues around humidity, common areas and such, right? And so that's where where things are at now. And I'm so glad we had that opportunity to create the logic around automation for the entire building versus just the in-unit because now it's so crucial to be able to do the notifications, um, maintenance alerts, and automation around those buildings. So yeah, crucial things to be able to do it and understand it from the get-go. Can you explain kind of the IOTIS product from the software perspective and then kind of how that integrates with hardware and to confirm, do y'all build your own hardware or do you just partner with other folks? Sure. So yeah, I guess I should have started with that. So IOTIS is a full and smart property automation service. We do everything from access entry into the building guest access entry. We do self-guided tours. Uh, we also do a lot of risk mitigation. So we prevented several leaks actually in construction timeframe, as well as while people are living there, humidity issues. Um, and then for the residents, they get this beautiful um, smart home experience that includes both voice uh, activation. And again, it's kind of like magic. Some of the stuff that we're doing with Amazon makes it that as soon as they walk in, they can say, hey, one good night story or, you know, without having to set up anything. And I think one of the big things that is differentiation for us is the ability to have that kind of beautiful user experience that that is part of our focus is making sure that the user experience is something that um, people will enjoy, as well as the property side, making it so that the property managers don't have um, a lot of heavy lifting to do to get this set up and running. So. Does that answer your question? That does answer oh, my oh, question. Oh, the hardware question. Yep. Yeah, and then on the hardware side, we only make our hub. We are hardware agnostic, hardware selective, but hardware agnostic. We would rather always partner with best-in-class hardware providers versus trying to make our own hardware. So 
for us, we will never go and make the hardware except um, our hub. And even then, we do see this opportunity where the hub may also go away, too. And so for us, really, what we think of ourselves and our company is like fleet management of IoT devices. And IoT devices could be many-fold. It could be uh, smart appliances coming down the pipe. It could be leak sensors. It could be doors. It could be uh, EV charging stations, whatever that is. That's what we like to integrate with and work with versus build our own. So explain that. So are y'all a better fit for somebody that's building something brand new and integrating them with construct uh, during the construction phase? Or are y'all able to come into an existing building and integrate the same way? Or is it two kind of different processes? So we are doing both. Um, I would say now we're probably about 50-50, 50% doing new construction, 50% doing uh, retrofits. There's some interesting models that, you know, we're capitalizing for the retrofits, right, so that we can help service retrofits, if you will, through connectivity, so internet connectivity, so being able to tie internet connectivity, which will offset the cost of capital outlay for um, in, uh, IoT solutions. And so financing the whole thing together into like one bulk plan. But for us, it doesn't really matter. The only thing I would say is like from a cost perspective, because we are financing through internet connectivity, it shouldn't make a huge difference on the cost side. Hopefully it's a revenue stream for retrofits. But if you weren't going to do that as a developer, then yes, it would be slightly more expensive than doing it as a new construction because with new construction, you're not. It's not the cost of the hardware because the cost of hardware is nearly the same as dumb stuff like the dumb locks are and the smart locks are about the same price point. The thermostats are about the same price point, right? So there isn't that much more outlay for making your building smarter in new construction now than there is for retrofits. Right. So if if I own an apartment building and I already have kind of all my appliances in, I have, you know, washer and dryer, and then, you know, a tenant already has their TV set up and, you know, other things that are electronic in nature or connect to the internet. What is IOTA's process for coming in and connecting everything together so that it's all um, on the IOTA's platform? Yeah, so it would be our hub, right? So mainly our mainly our hub, and we would change out the door locks and the thermostats and provide sensors. So the majority of the packages that are for retrofits, it's really for risk mitigation from what we've seen. And a lot of it is around leaks, but also labor savings, so uh, and providing like touchless touring, so the self-guided touring, what we call prospect tour, have been the major drivers right now of retrofitting older buildings. So four products, leak sensors, door lock, IOTIS hub, thermostat. have been kind of the main drivers for retrofits. And they're fairly easy to install and replace. So those are the things that we're seeing. And then and leak sensors are a simple placement. And, and what are some of the things, like what are the most common ways that tenants use the, the product? Uh, obviously for opening doors, You'd mentioned your partnership with Amazon, which I want to get into, but what would like a typical tenant say if they were saying, this is how I use IOTIS? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we were surprised by when we kind of looked at the data, because we thought locks would have more dominance uh, or thermostats or whatnot, it's still primarily lights and, and heavily voice. So anyone who has our system and has like an Amazon or a Google, the average daily usage were probably at... 30, 40%, uh, which is pretty high because uh, if you compare that to a social networking app that has an average daily usage of like 50%, a utility app is at like 25%. And we're kind of getting up there with social networking. And we were trying to understand like what was really the driver behind that. And lighting, lighting control is actually really high. We were surprised to see that. So are people um, like setting up timers if they usually get home from work around five, the lights are kind of maybe come on at 445 so that things are ready or maybe the air conditioning turns on, you know, 15 minutes before they get home or are they just walking in the door saying, turn on the lights? I think it's, it's more the latter. I'm more common to see the latter, more common to see like teens 
set up like a uh, dinner time, turn on dinner time. Um, Alexa, turn on movie night or Google, turn on bedtime, things like that. And then at the property manager ownership level, the property manager has more control over kind of the common spaces and things that are run in the building that are more of the owner or property manager's responsibility? Correct. And usually those are automated. So, and so, but we will go in and make sure that the automations have been set up correctly, especially during the polar vortex of last year. We just, you know, our customer care team just went through and checked and make sure that everybody's temperatures were uh, set correctly during polar work vortex to make sure that, you know, nothing happened in these buildings. So if they hadn't set their bottom and top thresholds, for example, for both occupied as well as vacants. Vacants, you have full control, but with occupied for many privacy law reasons, we are investigating whether or not we can do this. Uh, we will only set alerts for bottom and top thresholds for thermostats. So if they exceed it or drop below it, then they're notified. But yes, there's full control. And then we also have uh, reporting as well to kind of really validate like these things are being used, how they're being used, and so on. So you should have gotten a monthly report. Actually, it's going to your property management staff right now of what you're getting, what's working, what's not working, how much, how many things are online, offline, and how many like automations are being run uh, in your property and how much time that's saving you. And so if you're going to a, like you have tons of data now and uh, you're going to a new potential customer, is there some type of average savings on utility bills that are averaging or it's just kind of case by case or what's kind of the data behind that? Yeah, so we're showing uh, in the reports how you compare in terms of labor savings to all the IOS buildings. We haven't rolled this particular one out as a free report. We are looking at it as potentially an upgrade reporting, but will you get a grade as part of how your building is doing? So like an A, minus B, B plus compared to other buildings that have rolled out smart solution like ours. And if you come across an owner and it's like your building is super inefficient, are you all providing kind of the roadmap for how to create the efficiency? And do you all actually do that work or do you just give them a recommendation of what to do to make their building more efficient? No, so we check these reports. Uh, so our account managers check these reports. And so it's not just for energy efficiency, but it's also for labor efficiencies, right? Or like how the building might have been set up. Like, again, like on, around the polar freeze, we check those and make sure that it has been effectively set up. So we'll contact our customers. Our account managers will contact our property owners and say, hey, by the way, if you try it this way, you will probably get better results. I can't remember how you said it earlier. You said that, do y'all want to kind of have like a white label API that anybody can kind of plug into um, in the long term? Or, or what's kind of like the long term vision for how your IoT setup works? Sure. So this is interesting. Um, so we we are working with a lot of different telcos and ISPs and providing a solution for them um, as well. So yes, we white label select partner solutions. So we are powering um, particular telcos and ISPs right now. Got it. Is there anything since you started the business to where you are today that's, and we kind of talked about early on how the product was developed while you were officing inside the apartment community, but from like where your vision was in 2016 to today, is the product doing something maybe today that you didn't think you would have been doing back in 2016? Oh, this is a great one. More internet connectivity. So we're really getting into the business of providing managed Wi-Fi. Right Right now, we're working through with certain channel partners who are, as I said, white labeling our solution, but um, also really helping design those solutions as well. Uh, because what we need, and not just us, but we see this huge, uh, two, two major driving forces in the world which is 5G is coming around the corner. And then the other aspect is that more and more devices are being connected inside these buildings. I would say even when we first started out, your access entry was still localized, right? It was still being run on a local server. And that was, you know, only four years ago or so. Now we're seeing everything having to go to the cloud, right? Or have some sort of internet connectivity. And so we've had conversations with uh, large appliance manufacturers that, that are like, hey, can we you know, right on your backhaul and 
get access to our cloud. And I'm like, huh, interesting. More and more uh, companies are going to need internet connectivity. So more and more IoT companies that are approaching these real estate developers are going to need internet connectivity. And right now it's such a headache. And it's such a headache for you all to manage like 40 different providers and not just sign contracts with them, but now think about how to get them online and serviced and then integrated as well. So there's two components to this, which is the connectivity part and then the kind of the IoT brain or the IoT cloud part that integrates those things to actually talk to each other and be useful together, right? So that's where we see some of the bigger things. We always knew that the IoT brain would happen, but we didn't think about that the connectivity, the I in IoT, the internet, happened had to happen first before the things could really like connect to each other. And so that's where um, our, a shift has been, is like we're really getting much more involved in that area. What do you mean by the IoT brain? Uh, the cloud portion. Got it. So... So really, um, all these solutions are so heterogeneous. They're they they barely talk to each other, um, and there's really no one like making them talk to each other, right? And so I think things are getting better over time, but it's still so haphazard of like how they talk to each other. But it's so useful. So let's just take like a smart appliance because we're actively working on this. Where if you had that smart appliance company has a network of maintenance folks, right? And that appliance is uh, under warranty. It sends a message to our IOTIS cloud. IOTIS cloud then sends a message out to Yardi or RealPage or other PMS solution and says there's a maintenance requirement. Maintenance ticket gets issued. That maintenance ticket also then triggers us to send over to whoever that appliance manufacturer's back-end service group uh, an access code into the building access code into the unit, notification to the residents that somebody's going to enter their unit to uh, service that appliance. And so all those things are touching, I don't know, four different clouds at that point. So something has to integrate that, but it has to be that seamless, right? And it has to be that automated. Otherwise, like, I can't even imagine, like, a leasing agent who's supposed to lease up 100 units trying to coordinate that, right, across whatever number of appliances. And so that's the future we see. And that's where it becomes really interesting and exciting. What are like, and this was uh, a question that somebody had come through on Twitter with, but what are the biggest bottlenecks kind of standing in the way of IoT scaling more rapidly? Like what are your biggest challenges ahead? Yeah, so uh, I would say right now it's connectivity. And so we figured out how to connect our products because we knew that that was going to be something that is critical. But I would say some providers kind of came into the picture thinking that, hey, Wi-Fi is going to be here. Oh, or I can just connect to, you know, such and such network and then realizing that they can't and that we were like the only option to connect them. And so, so connectivity, I think, is the big one that certain big solution providers, they were very much thinking single family. Right, and that they they have designed their product to be Wi-Fi capable when there is no Wi-Fi there. Right, so so providing that, I think, will help some of that bottleneck. And I don't want to ask a dumb question. The Wi-Fi that you're connecting to is is that what the hub is? It provides the Wi-Fi, or are you connecting to each unit's Wi-Fi, or is the building owner required to have like a very powerful Wi-Fi source to connect the whole building? Like, I don't know exactly how to ask that question, but where are you connecting yeah, into? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally hear you. So right now we do have our, our backhaul in both ways. So we have an Ethernet Wi-Fi through the building owner, like the bulk Wi-Fi, if you will. And we also have a cellular connectivity on top of that. Right, so we have multiple ways to connect, but we see that the future has to be through a bulk IoT kind of maybe a reduced cost of of Wi-Fi for that building. But I think really there's some really interesting business models that could come of that too for the building owners, where they can revenue share on what that bulk IoT looks like. So for us, we're actually starting to roll out managed Wi-Fi or managed internet connectivity. Yep, I love it. So Google, Amazon, Apple, you know, for years we've been hearing that they're, you know, the next 
thing they're going to go after is obviously the smart home. You've seen Google make products like the Nest and things that are uh, becoming more mainstream. Amazon has been very vocal about wanting to continue to get to the end user through their home. You've heard of Apple and y'all recently kind of formed a partnership with Amazon. Can you kind of speak to how that came about and, you know, maybe why you didn't try and partner with Google, or maybe you're trying to do that too, but maybe how the Amazon thing really came about and, uh, what you're going to be doing there. Yeah, sure. So we've been talking to them. We're neighbors. We're in the Pacific Northwest. We're in Portland or in Seattle. And we've been selling alongside them. They've been selling alongside us, thinking about us, thinking about them. They try to go head and head to head with us as well. And I think we all decided that'd be better to partner. Uh, because kind of going back to, you know, tech, you know, true technology is uh, indistinguishable from magic. One of the biggest challenges we found was that even though we had connected our system to the Googles and the Amazons of the world, the biggest challenge was then the resident having to take kind of like this um, built for single family home product to make it work with our system. So for them to like sign on their account and then download the Amazon app and then or Google app and then sign in and then find our skill, download that skill onto the Amazon app, it was about an 11-step process. So even though real estate developers were giving some of these away as um, resident gifts, a lot of the time they were just being thrown into a drawer, right? Because it was such a headache. And so for, for them, like for the Amazons and Googles of the world, they want that, they want to be connected to the resident. And they're, but the <laughs> residents are just tossing it into a drawer because it's just a headache to connect and it's not going to help. And so, you know, a few of these companies approached us and said, what is the one thing we can do to increase our usage? Because we told them the stats. Like we told them, hey, look, when we do see usage, usage is really, really high, right? Your interface is how, uh, some of our customers primarily interact with IOTIS when it happens, when it's not tossed into a drawer. And we said, fix, fix the issue for us, help us fix the issue for you of the 11 steps that it takes for a, a resident to get Amazon working with our system. And they said, okay. And uh, they went to town. They they went and figured it out, came back and approached us and said, hey, would this work? And we worked very closely with them on what would work, what wouldn't work, um, and kind of walked it through and identified a few select buildings who rolled us out with initially and to test it out so that basically now when you walk into any unit, there will be an Amazon in those select buildings, um, Alexa there. And if it's a vacant unit tour with our like property tour, um, self-guided tour, Alexa can answer questions about that building, like how much is a pet deposit, turn on the lights, turn off all the lights, show me what good night looks like, whatever it is. And then when a resident moves in, it will work exactly like magic. Like they can say, turn on the lights, turn off the lights, change my thermostat, play music, whatever that is. And if they choose to, they can add their own account to it. So they can add their own Amazon Alexa account and then really own that voice interaction, right? But they don't have to if they don't want to. So what, just what's the difference between them using the Amazon Alexa product without linking their own account to it versus if they link their own account to it? Let's say they bought something. They want to buy. They want to order. I don't know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> A hand soap or whatever it is. Amazon Alexa knows how to do the billing, right, to your account. And so, you know, that might be the next generation product, right, is that they don't, the building maybe it's associated with the building. And I'm just going to brainstorm here and and tell Amazon about this, but like maybe the building owners could take a cut of all transaction if it's not attached to the personal account. Is there an Amazon Alexa going in each unit? And is that where a tenant if they're uh, looking at the property to potentially move in, are they asking Alexa those questions while they're in the unit? Or is there also an Alexa up at the front desk that they can talk to? Like, where are they having that interaction? Some of the companies that we're rolling out with uh, right now, signing deals with, they would want it everywhere. 
right? So in the common areas, in the lobby, they also want uh, interaction with the property managers where the property managers can set up all these simple Q&A. So the property manager can say, you know, here's the answer for this question or answer this question in a certain way. And and then anyone coming up to it could ask those questions, right? And so that's where it becomes really interesting where if you have like an art installation um, in your building, uh, you can have question Alexa and say, hey, tell me about this art installation or tell me about the pet washing station or whatever that is. And is this an exclusive partnership with Amazon? Are there other folks partnered with Amazon or... Um... You know, how does that look? No, no, no. Yeah, no, we wouldn't. We don't typically find exclusivities. I don't think Amazon would either. Yeah. How was it like working with Amazon? Obviously, one of the most innovative companies on the planet. Has it been a really cool experience just kind of getting to learn from them? Yeah, no, they've been great. Um, and I, I really enjoy working with the Google, Google team as well. The difference, slight difference might be that Amazon team has been just act just a little bit longer from uh, a property management side of it, right? So maybe that's a slight difference, but uh, they've been really cool to work with. They really do live their ethos of, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the, their day one, day two analogies and their two pizza <laughs> analogies where there's no team larger than two pizza can support or something like that. And so it's they can move faster I think because of this notion of like having smaller team that's self-contained, self-governing, and can whip out a product really quickly. And so they've been uh, wonderful to work with. Is Apple playing in this space? Are they trying to, to get in as well? I hear more about Google and Amazon, but is Apple kind of doing anything? I hope so. And if anyone from Apple is listening, uh, we can help with the fleet side management. Um, so I, I hope so. We are, no matter what we're developing to Apple um, and have some ideas around how we could develop to Apple. But uh, I think the ecosystem is starting to open up a little bit more before they were pretty tight. So hopefully we'll see some more um, interactions with Apple soon. So don't mean to ask, you know, too private of a question. I don't even know if this is a private question, but does Amazon eventually buy you or who, who buys an IOTIS? Um, obviously, you're a venture-backed company. What does an exit look like in this space? Who, who would want you? Oh, boy. Well, one of our competitors just recently uh, exited to RealPage. I'm sure you saw that. Okay. Um, I think there's numerous different potential exits. We would like to go acquire a few companies before we do that um, ourselves. Uh, because we have really strong uh, venture backing. And so we, we think we could go pretty far before we exit or exit for a, a very good reason. Um, but anyways, but yes, I would say that there's definitely tech companies out there who are interested, telcos that are interested. Interesting enough, we've been also approached by uh, large integrator servicing companies. Uh, as well. So that's one of the interesting parts. But PMS companies, sure. Everyone who wants to be in the real estate business has kind of approached us already. I don't mean to ask the dumbest question of the day, but what's the definition of a telco from your perspective? Oh, yeah. So for us, it's uh, anybody who is doing connectivity. So it could be the AT&Ts, the Verizons, Cox, Charter, Comcast of the world. I didn't ask you when we first started, but how did you get into this whole industry, even with your the, the first company that you founded? Like, what brought you into this world? Into just tech or? Yeah, into, the, into this kind of telco tech type of world. It seems like that's what your first company was. That's what you're doing now. What got you interested in all this? Because I tried to start a company in 2000 and the dot bomb happened. And I looked around at the, at the demise of all these internet companies. And I was like, okay, what's next? What's really going to happen that's big next? And I I kind of had a hunch that it was me smartphones. And I joined Palm at the time was like the smartphone manufacturer. Oh, yeah. I, I had no idea. Like Apple, like who knew Apple was going to be? Um, I ended up in Silicon Valley right after college. And that's how I got into the tech industry. But even in college, I had my own like web design company. 
that I launched. I was always really interested in programming and technology. But I was an art major, so go figure. But the art program taught me to code. So it's totally random, but the art program was uh, electronic arts and taught me to code, taught me to like well, taught me to do a bunch of different things that were more, I guess, techie and got really lucky, ended up in Silicon Valley. And that was kind of the rest of the story. I'll never forget when my dad brought home a Palm Pilot and it had that little stylus (laughs) pin with it. I just thought the world was so far and then the BlackBerry <laughs> came out and just the world is uh-huh. getting so much better. And here we are today. And I don't even know if those, I know BlackBerry still exists. Does Palm Pilot still exist? No, they got bought by HP. I'm like so sad for them. I still have all my models of the, of the phones that I worked on. <laughs> How'd you do with your web design business? Was that a, was that just a, <laughs> was that just a hobby or was that a, something that you, uh, you bought and sold or what happened there? No, no. It was uh, it. It got me um, from college to being able to have some cred to start in a, a consulting job, and so that's it. Got me into a consulting firm, and so that led to like more opportunities. But yeah, no, that that one I just kind of tabled after I got a real job. I didn't have this in my list of notes, but you you're you're the actually the first person that I have talked with that lived kind of through the the dot-com bust of early 2000s mm-hmm. what was that like mm-hmm. was it depressing yeah like one day the world <laughs> is soaring and the next day you know tech's getting poo-pooed on by the whole world so at the time right before i was trying to start my own company uh i was working at a at a, a really well-funded startup that was like a widget-based thing on a website anyways and for a while, we would just come in to the office and do nothing but drink coffee. And uh, we would, like, tell each other's fortune. We would do, like, Turkish coffee. <laughs> and somebody would, like, make Turkish coffee. It was, like, the most useless time. And we're like, why are we even showing up right now? Like, this is really depressing. But it was like that everywhere. Like, everyone was just sitting around, twiddling their thumb, going, what are we supposed to do? And then at one point, they're like, okay, just don't show up anymore. Why was so it depressing? Because y'all ran out of funding or because the technology you were working on ultimately wasn't that great to begin with? Because as I hear about like the Amazon story, he talks a lot about how their stock, you know, almost went to, you know, a dollar or whatever, but he knew that their technology was great and they kept pushing forward. Why, why did, why did like y'all's business come to a screeching halt? Lack of funding or bad software or what was it? All of the above, if you ask me, right? I think it's really all of the above. So it was depressing in the sense that you work so hard to build something, right? And you really believe in the vision. And then when it doesn't materialize, it's hard, right? It's hard to take. I can't even imagine what it was like for the founders of the company. And they're brilliant, like like PhDs and whatnot, right? Maybe not so good on the business side, but still, they were brilliant. And they came up with this really great idea, raised a lot of money. And then, yeah, the, the funding got up. And it was not a must-have product either, right? It was kind of a cool widget on a website. And so I think that was also kind of depressing. And so I, I if you read uh, the, what is it, the hard things, about hard things, by, um, uh, Horowitz, Ben Horowitz, and how he got through those, that time period, it's also, he didn't give up, right? He f- figured it out somehow. And it's just the way that Bezos like stuck through it. You got to also wonder, like, if you really, truly believe in your technology and the product and the product adoption and the path forward and what's right around the corner of what's going to happen after this, what I would call the creative destruction. Anytime there's a recession, it's more of creative destruction. Then you, then you soldier on. Like, you, you're resilient. You can get through it. You maybe get down to bare bones, but you don't give up. Right. And I think that to me is, is, half the battle is just not giving up and soldiering on because from those ashes, something is going to rise. Something's going to be different. Like when coronavirus happened, everybody's like, oh, holy crap, what do we do now? Right? And the first thing we did was talk to all of our customers and ask, what is it that we can pr- provide you right now that would help you? Right? And everybody's like, self-guided tour. Okay. And like, okay. Everybody stopped everything, did that, launched it within four weeks. Right? And so that's where for us, like anytime there's that level of what I would call 
creative destruction and, and down cycle, something is going to rise from that. So just make it something happen. And when you talk about creative destruction, do you mean that there's there's ample funding for kind of creativity when things are going well, but when things go wrong, like funding for kind of these new creative ideas that, that were already in motion kind of stops and, and then the people that are kind of entering with, you know, no baggage get to kind of pick up where everybody else left off? Yeah, good point, sort of. So that term creative destruction comes from uh, this economist Actually, he was a Soviet economist who got thrown into the gulags because he proved out that capitalism worked versus socialism. And so he spoke, spoke to all the recession. And because at the time, I think it was Great Depression, and the Soviet Union was trying to say, hey, look at the Great Depression. This is why you know capitalism is a, is a fraud and doesn't work. And he actually proved out that, no, during times of recession and depressions like this, there is so much new ideas that come from that destruction and sometimes better ideas and better innovations and so on. And so they're called K-waves and the, so the economist is called TF. And so from that perspective, it's all about like, how do you create something new out of, out of something old? Yep. Can you walk me through really quick that spinning up of self-guided tours in four weeks? Like, how did that look on y'all's end? Uh, y'all were all obviously probably working remote or from home at that time. Like, how did you come up with this innovative product, ship it in four weeks, and provide value to your customer? Yeah, so one of the things as CEO, when things of that nature happen where your uh, your team is completely blindsided by activity that is completely out of our control, like the economy folding because of a virus that is rampaging um, and shutting down the economy, like, uh, morale sinks, right? Morale is just in the toilet. You you got to have a rallying cry. You got to give a goal, a, a a perspective of like, you know, there's there's meaning to be had here. So what is the social good that we could do right now? that would be meaningful to our customers and and rally the troops, I guess, around that. And also at the same time, going back to like finding opportunities in these dire moments, like instead of sitting around twiddling your thumb or just waiting for the end to come, like do something about it, right? We were working from home by that point. Everyone was putting in quite a long, lot of hours. Everybody was like, okay, this, this is a clear thing that we could focus on and not get distracted by. Uh, all the noise, right? And so it was, I got really favorable response from the team about like that moment. And, you know, we're still weathering it, right? Coronavirus. But I think that kind of helped like bring everybody together too. So even though we were remote, to have something to like talk about, rally around, check in on, right? So yeah, it's been good. And how does the self-guided tour actually work? So typically... The first thing we did was we uh, worked with like BMX or existing access entry, Butterfly MX, um, existing access entry groups to allow access into the building. And then you can convert 10 units to be shown or vacant units to be shown or just the model units to be shown. And it's low cost. It's, uh, I want to say like $200 a month or so. And it's really easy setup. So... Or if you're already a customer and you already have smart locks on all your doors, then we just activate it for you and you're good to go. And the way that prospects find you through your website or whatnot, they go and schedule the time that they want to see the units. We also do an identity verification first and foremost, right? So capture driver's license and whatnot. And then after that, we send them an email of like their appointment time. And then when their appointment time rolls around, we'll send them another email that is QR code for systems like Butterfly MX that they can scan to get into the building and an actual door code, a pin code that they can use to access the unit itself. So there's no app to download or anything like that. Do do I have to go to the owner's actual website for the property or can I do that through like apartments.com or you know, whatever people use to search for apartments. Um, it's however the owner wants to set that up. If they want to put it on apartments.com, that's totally fine by us. But they can um, use typically, like most owners are having it go through their own website. 
That's super interesting. I, I just have to say, you're super thoughtful as a leader. Um, and just hearing you kind of talk about the rallying cry and team morale and, and downturns and things like that. Where do you kind of learn your leadership style? Has it has it been a mentor reading? You're very, very thoughtful. Uh, lots of reading, but better leaders than I. I'm, no, I have a really strong mentor, mentors uh, that I've been so lucky to have in my life that I've pursued to be my mentor too. Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, it wasn't just like, hey, you know, luckily happened upon this mentor. I literally had to ask a few of them like for months, right, to mentor me and they agreed, right? And so I've been really lucky to have really strong CEOs, uh, past, you know, CEOs who helped me be better at this. And this is kind of off topic, but you, you are living in Portland right now, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so I just kind of want to clear the record because I actually had dinner the other night with a a woman from Portland that had flown into DFW for some property that we're selling. And Portland's obviously gotten a lot of attention. If you're living through the coronavirus, it's tough enough. But from a from a if I was just here in Texas reading the media, you would think that Portland is, for lack of better words, on fire. What's the reality in Portland right now? It's beautiful. It's sunny. It's about eighty degrees. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not. It's uh, it's all that is happening late at night. It's about two city blocks. Usually not really in neighborhoods, really. And maybe it's just me, and I'm fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood that's not impacted by it. But most of Portland kind of like are big, not really participating or ignoring that, right? I think the biggest thing was probably the smoke, the fires recently, which kind of really was like a bit like the end of the world. But the protests are have been really low impact for actual Portland residents. That's kind of what she said. She was on the, I think it was like the mom wall or a, a wall of moms or something. Um, oh, she was doing that? Wow, good for her. Yeah, she was on the wall of moms and she just said if if the media had kind of portrayed what was going on in Portland as like a severity of 10, she really felt like it was more like a one or a two, but she just spoke very positively and said, you know, she kind of hoped that the stigma around Portland not being a safe place to travel to goes away quickly because it's actually doing more harm than any of the protests themselves. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I was thinking more selfishly, like, oh, well, the traffic's really nice. I hope yeah. Because <laughs> <this is out." laughs> <laughs> we had such an influx of people moving into the town. But yeah, no, that's a good point. And no, it's it's really it's really safe. Well, I've got some a few uh, just kind of fun personal questions to to bring us down to the finish line, and uh, so do you have a, a morning routine or something that you do to get your day going? Uh, I meditate uh, when I can because I also have two kids and I try to get them to meditate with me. I walk. I'm lucky that I live right next to an arboretum. Uh, so when the smokes were gone, it's like I tried to at least get a, a quick morning walk to the arboretum. And then for better or for worse, I always check my phone. That's probably the first thing I do. Not proud of it, but it is right next to my bed. So... I check to see if anyone's texted me, emailed me, anything I need to press on immediately. First, try to knock those out and then do the rest of my routine. So, And I don't typically eat breakfast. I find it to be a, not a waste of time, but sort of, I guess. I yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to like, uh, and everybody's like, you should eat breakfast. And I'm like, ah, I don't care to. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of my routine, I guess. Do you use an app to meditate, or do you just do it by yourself? I do it by myself. I stayed in a, a monastery for a bit, so know how to do it, but yeah. Yeah. What's the best advice somebody's ever given you? Oh, boy. <laughs> I think it's it's a general advice that I've heard over and over again, which is like, uh, like don't sweat the small stuff. It all works out. Like everything will be fine. You know, just keep your cool kind of thing. <laughs> I just heard this recently. I don't know if this is a real Chinese proverb or not, but um, somebody said, "If something's not working, why get mad? If it is working, why get mad?" Right? It's like if something does work, 
great. If something doesn't work, great. There's no need to get mad about it. So, yeah. I love it. Keep it cool. Any books that have inspired you or things that come to the top of your mind when you think about reading? Mm, um, I'm trying to think. You know, I am a huge fan of Patrick Lencioni and any of those books that uh, that he's put together from just a career development, team development. I tried, like, several uh, books that actually gave me more anxiety yeah. reading them. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit, I'm not doing things right <laughs> Uh, I gotta say, like the hard things about hard things, it actually gave me more anxiety. But I was like, I get it. But boy, I feel really anxious. Um, and uh, same with the, the the OKR book that came out recently. Measure what um, matters. Measure, yeah, measure what matters. Yeah. So I I kind of really appreciate the Patrick Lencioni books, like uh, team building books. I'll have to look into those. I stole this question from Tim Ferriss, but I just really like it a lot. Um, if there was a billboard on a highway that you owned and you could put anything on that billboard for the world to see, what would you put on that billboard? Oh, wow. It all works out. It all works out. I love it. What's the best way for people to reach you, either by Twitter or find IOTIS? LinkedIn, actually, is the best way to reach me and probably IOTIS as well. Thank you so much for... Uh, taking an hour of your day to spend time with me on this podcast it was it was a pleasure and i love what you're doing obviously yeah no thank you for having me and like i said really want to interview you sometime and maybe like we'll get a podcast going about how you're doing your brand because you're doing some amazing stuff i appreciate it as soon as you uh decide to start it call me i'm i'm ready okay we'll do all right say thank you so much and have a great rest of your day thanks bye Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.